Hi, everybody. Uh, Happy New Year. This is our first podcast of 2021. Um, Hasn't been an eventful week at all anywhere in the world, so we're just moving forward with our podcast. (laughs) My name is Jennifer West. I'm the Artistic Director of Muse West Concerts, and I am the host of our podcast, Take Note. I would like to begin by acknowledging that I am a settler located on the unceded and traditional territories of the Coast Salish nations of Musqueam, Silvertooth, and Squamish, which is now known as Vancouver. My guest today is situated on the traditional territory of the Lenape Nation, which is known as New York City. Music has been made on these lands since time immemorial, and we wish to honor that. Now it is my pleasure to introduce my dear friend and today's guest, pianist Larry Wang. Larry is a winner of the 2019 New York Concert Artist Worldwide Debut Audition and a laureate of the 2016 Reine Elisabeth Concours de Piano. He's an avid chamber musician, soloist, and music educator. Welcome to our podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm doing okay. It's, it's, uh, it was an early morning. I drove back to New York, so a bit tired, a bit, uh, a bit hectic trying to get everything together. But uh, yeah, yeah, things are going good. Things are going good. Great. Um, so some of our audience has met you in concert in 2019 when you played with your brother, Wayne. That's right. So that's a lifetime ago. <laughs> it feels like it. It feels like life kind of stopped two months after that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what life was like back then, but yeah. I can look at pictures on my phone and try <laughs> to remember. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for the, all those people that haven't met you yet, uh, we're going to do a quick rapid fire round of questions for the audience to get to know you. Sure. Um, you have to say the answer that first comes to your mind. You're not allowed to overthink this. Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> Mozart or Beethoven? Beethoven. <gasps> that was easy. <laughs> uh, you said, you said you're not allowed to think so, you know, gone on instinct now. <laughs> Good call. Uh, Debussy or Ravel? Ravel. Oh, that was fast too. Yeah. And your favorite post-concert meal? Mm, ribeye steak. Ribeye steak. Okay, a good choice. And funny enough, I'm not the first musician to answer steak after performing. You gotta get your protein. <laughs> we'll talk about fitness after. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is the most memorable concert you ever attended in New York? Oh, uh, that's an easy one. Uh, Radu Lupu playing solo in Carnegie Hall, uh, second half, 960. It was uh, mesmerizing, absolutely mesmerizing. Um, it's the quiet, you know, Carnegie, it's kind of a big place, you know, it's a little big. So, uh, but it's, you've never heard it so quiet before. It's it just, and no one was breathing. It was, uh, it was incredible, incredible. And, and the thing is, I was way up in the rafters, all the way up. And up, uh, up, oh, oh, look who it is! Um, all the way up in the rafters, and you could still hear every inflection and every nuance. It was uh, really, really incredible. Do you want to introduce us to your cat, please? Yeah, I guess <laughs> she knows that we're 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 doing this. So here she is. She she wants her attention. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Daisy. <laughs> this is the okay. All right. She doesn't. Know <laughs> um, okay, that's, so that's, that's Daisy Buchanan, my boss. <laughs> Your boss. Yeah, boss. So that's Larry's manager. <laughs> that's right. All inquiries go to her. Yes. Daisy <laughs> at cats.com. <laughs> sure. Uh, so um, that that's another question. Cats or dogs? You know, it's a funny question, right? Because I, I'm actually by nature a dog person. I'm a dog person that ended up with a cat. Um, <laughs> it, no, I'm serious. I, 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 you know, I was never allowed to have pets growing up. And I also had terrible allergies, which I kind of, you know, got rid of. But um, yeah, I couldn't have a dog. I can't have a dog here. My my building doesn't allow it. And, uh, you know, it's hard to, in this tiny little closet apartment in New York, you know, to have like the kind of dog that I would like. And so I ended up with a cat and uh, awesome. And all inquiries go to Daisy. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> um, last question. Favorite post-concert drink? This is the drink that you should always have, which is a single malt, neat, not on the rocks, because that is a sin. <laughs> so to have the malt whiskey on the rocks is a sin. Yeah, it's yellow water. You're paying for yellow water. I, I can I can find yellow water anywhere. <laughs> Especially in New York. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. It's plenty <laughs> abundant over here. So it's true. <laughs> Um, so now that um, our audience has gotten to know your cat, 
and some composers and how to drink after a concert, which never happens. No, 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 of course not. (laughs) Not not a thing. Not a thing. It's not a thing that happens. Um, We're going to get into some really nerdy musical questions later. Um, But you have recently picked up sport that you love. (laughs) Recently is relative, but sure, yes, recently. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, it's something you do to stay healthy when you're not playing Brahms. Uh, Tell us a bit about what got you into Muay Thai, because we want our audience to kind of get to know these musicians, not just as these musically nerdy people, which is great, but (laughs) there's more. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, there's something about... uh, combat sports now a lot of people you know will say that they're barbaric or they're this or that but however (laughs) yes yes i i'm not going to disagree with you there but at the end of the day there is something that when you have the most primal of activities it shows something about people right The, the most basic elements of humanity and there's also a certain toughness and there's a certain discipline that goes into learning the craft of it. it's not just you just go in there and uh, fling your arms around right there's there's technique there's strategy there's conditioning there's strength there's all sorts of stuff um it becomes uh you know like a, a weird little metaphor for life right <laughs> and, and it, it's 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 a really hackneyed thing to say but it is kind of true like there's a certain toughness that, that it instills in you, you know, when you're getting punched in the face. You know, <laughs> uh, it, it, it shows you, you know, things are not that bad. <laughs> it shows you that maybe memorizing a Brahms sonata isn't the worst thing. Yeah, right, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> like, the, it's, a, it's a threat perception thing. It's the same thing that I used to do when uh, I, I had a crazy phase where I was really into powerlifting and uh, uh, I would lift before concerts. And it was, it was, again, it has nothing to do with the physical exertion, but the fact is you have, you know, a bunch of heavy things in front of you or on top of you or threatening to crush you. It, it really reduces the sense of risk or, or threat. They're saying walking on stage, ah, that's no problem, right? So. Yeah. I think a lot of students really struggle with that. Um, we try to keep our podcast somewhat related to education, and sometimes we talk about cats, and sometimes we talk about drinking. It's all good. Um, <laughs> But do you think that this is something that a lot of students need to face is that making that first step on stage is not going to kill them and it's not going to be the end of their life and they can make it through? Yeah, uh, I, I think it's really important for students to they, they need to taste success, but they also need to taste failure. Right. And and, and it, the younger, the better. Because if you just go through life cakewalking and everything's great and all of a sudden, you know, you're handed your first major defeat or setback when you're 18, 19, 20. Oh, it's tough. Mm-hmm. It hurts more. Resilience. Resili- is really right. Resilience and knowing knowing how to take take the lump sometimes. Right. So, yeah, it's and that's the thing is that, like, I always tell my students, it's like, these are mistakes that I make. These are mistakes that everybody makes. It's not unique. And of course, when you're in the situation, you feel like, oh, okay, this is my problem. It's not your problem. It's all, we all have the same problems. So, so in other words, they're not special. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. We, we're all in the same terrible boat sometimes, right? So speaking of all being in terrible <laughs> boats right now, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, we're sending thoughts and maybe prayers to our neighbors in the South. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I've I've exhausted my words about that, right? Yeah, let's uh, you know. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Let's talk about Brahms. It's much more pleasant. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so speaking of music and teaching and mentors, who have been some of your musical mentors along the way that have helped your journey to becoming the musician you are today? You know, I I've had that's it's an interesting question because you know. It, a lot of musicians, they'll have uh, uh, one figure or they'll have someone who's like incredibly seminal in their life and uh, and it will push them in a certain direction because of that contact with one person. I don't I don't actually really feel like I can say that about a single person. I've had inc- a lot of incredible influences along the way. And it's always this kind of uh, piecing together. You get a little bit here, you get a little bit there and you put it together and try to get a, a you know, a, a better understanding of, of what it is you're trying to do. So it's really hard. I, I, I always, always try to stay away from, you know, giving one influence and there's many of them, a preferential treatment, you know, mm-hmm. in your background. So 
because they've all they've all helped for and sure. I for sure. I feel the same about my piano teachers because I've had you know people that I've gone to regularly for a long time or people that have listened to me a few times and really helped and it's yeah it doesn't necessarily need to be a long-term thing people could meet you at different points of your musical journey right i mean it's 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 your mentors and it's also also your peers i find uh you know they there's a saying is iron sharpens iron right that, <laughs> yes that when you're it's one of the attractions of being here in a place like new york is that this this place is full of people who are incredibly talented and incredibly passionate and, and very very good at what they do and you know being just in that context in that environment it, it gives you a little bit of a little bit of fire inside it gives you a little bit of oh i need to you know you know be on my toes yeah, it, it's a place that um, I've been to New York five times in my life. Um, and the first time I went to New York, I arrived at Port Authority. It's a wonderful <laughs> and, place. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I, <laughs> I arrived at two in the morning on the Greyhound bus from Montreal. And I've taken that bus many, many times. <laughs> It was awful. <laughs> it was really awful. And I, I get out the bus and my friend meets me at Port Authority at two in the morning. And she's like, let's go eat pizza. And we were like a lot younger. So, of course, we didn't sleep. Um, and I just, you know, I instantly fell in love with the city. And now there's so many special people to me that live in New York. And um, whenever I go there, I feel like there's this energy that goes into my body that keeps me buzzing um even though I'm literally probably exhausted and I don't feel it till I get on the plane home but I'm always the last one to board the plane at Newark they're like okay last call and I'm sitting there like no I don't want to leave um but I can sense that it's a very special place for musicians to be because there's a lot of competition and I I know that it has been rough on some people because they go there and they don't realize how competitive it is but how do you feel about that? Do you feel it's too competitive in New York or is there like a kind community that helps each other? Uh, uh, <laughs> Maybe I'll, not kind. I'll, I'll answer the first part of that question first. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, competition again, and this is, I guess, something that dulls with age. Um, when I, and this is the story for a lot of people, I think, and I've talked to a lot of my, my, my colleagues about this, and I think they share similar sentiments, which is when you first come in, yeah, a lot of us come from smaller places and you're kind of like the big shot, hot shot there and you come to New York and everybody's that person. Right. And, mm -hmm. and the thing is, uh, it takes a while to realize that those things don't really matter. <laughs> it takes a long time. It takes a lot of a lot of of of, of, of putzing around and doing stupid things until you realize that it, that doesn't really matter, right? And, and uh, so, uh, it, having having good peers is not just the fact that you can you know uh, keep motivated, but it's also that having people around that you can trust their judgment. You can trust their judgment. You can trust their ears, uh, and and you can respect them. And at the end of the day, that's that's incredibly important to have that kind of a network, to have that kind of environment around you, because it is hard. You know, uh, being a musician in this day and age is not exactly the easiest thing to do. So, what you're telling the kids out there is go to medical school. <laughs> I did not say that. I would never <laughs> say that. <laughs> It, it's a very difficult career, and um, a lot of people, they come to me asking, like, is, is this what my kid should do? Is this what I should do? And I just tell them the truth. I'm like, well, yes, but just be prepared for a bit of a bumpy ride. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really good advice, and it's also... Um here, here's one. Okay. Speaking of mentors, here's one that was very influential and who has been, you know, was a former teacher and someone that I've known for over 20. Well, wow. 20, over 20 years. I'm old. Um, <laughs> you keep saying that. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. I just, it was, those words are just, it's shocking. Um, yeah. So uh, my first week uh, in New York, studying with uh, Jerome Lowenthal and he would, he told, he told me, Look, if you're coming here and you have the notion that you're going to become rich and famous playing the piano, walk out that door now. <laughs> right? Yeah. If you true. have, it, but if you have other reasons to stay here and learn, 
then stay and 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 you will for sure learn um and this is but you have to you know now talking about advice to 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 younger generations you really have to find something worth doing in it it's not just a means to something else or else uh you know it's hard to make keep that fire going for it mm-hmm. yeah and that is something that i hope um a lot of our young students tuned into our podcasts later Sunday afternoons are usually at their lessons, but a lot of them tune in. <laughs> they tune in after, and I think that's really important is that if you don't have that fire, um, it's perhaps not the best place to be. You know, it's really, it's a challenge. Um, speaking of music, um, you're going to be performing for us a virtual lecture recital. So for those that are new to the game, um, this is on Friday, January 29th. I was about to say 2020, but it's not 2020 anymore. Kind of feels like it's still 2020, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. No, I literally feel like we're stuck on the last day of 2019, yeah. and it's been a nightmare the whole time, but it's okay because we have Brahms. Um, so for those that are new to the game, what is a lecture recital, and how is it different than a concert? Well, I mean, a lecture recital can be any kind of format, but essentially the idea is that you give some background not just background but uh, more more a narrative a way of framing what it is that you're going to be playing well that's the idea is to to, mm-hmm. to make the music a little bit more accessible because you know let's be honest it's a borderline 50 minute piece and that's not exactly the easiest thing that to say to someone here sit down enjoy yeah mm-hmm. i mean it's great music and i can tell you a hundred different ways why mm-hmm. and that's kind of the idea Right. And this is kind of going against what Brahms would say right, <laughs> himself about absolute music. <laughs> yes. But, but the idea is that, you know, education and um, presenting people with a, a fascinating way of looking for material and things in the music, it gives them a richer listening experience. Mm-hmm. And so the idea behind this particular lecture recital is that it, it was uh, an idea that came to me when I was starting learning the piece. Uh, it's you know it's the Beethoven year, and um, I was supposed to. Uh, well, it was a plan of mine. I was, I, I, I have uh, I was supposed to have a recital in, in uh, Wow Hall this year, and that obviously didn't happen. But the recital, the the conception behind the recital was that it was going to be an homage concert to Beethoven that didn't overtly feature Beethoven. And so I was thinking in my head, hmm, what pieces allude to Beethoven in a very obvious way and wow does the Brahms do that I mean (laughs) it's really clear from the very opening it's this is it's something very 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 heavy on his mind when he's writing this piece Mm -hmm. and uh, the more I looked into it the more I learned the piece the more I I thought it was a very interesting narrative there's a narrative to the piece Uh, there's a a slightly poetic narrative uh, about you know the the relationship of mentor and student or, or inspiration and the, the newer generation of artists. And um, so I thought it was fascinating. And it's something that for me enriched how I looked and learned the piece. And I thought would probably help uh, the audience listen and appreciate, appreciate the music more. So that's what this lecture recital is about. Well, we're pretty excited um, for this on Friday. I'm going to keep saying the date and time so that, you know, they say you need to say things three times for people to get it. So, <laughs> is, that, is, that, um, is that like a Candyman thing? <laughs> it probably is. <laughs> um, it's very good point. <laughs> yeah. So Friday, January 29th, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern, which means after dinner drinks for friends on the um, East Coast, watch with dinner for us on the West Coast. Um, I'll be making salmon. <laughs> um delicious west coast salmon but um we're really excited and we're so grateful for that concert and looking forward to it um you were a bit hesitant to do online concerts tell me more about why (laughs) you know because i think there are already enough people screaming into the void Now, that's, that's a, that's a, wow, that's perfect. That's, yeah, it's a <laughs> half, half facetious answer, but it's kind of <laughs> half heartfelt as well, right? Uh, I, I'm never one to, to toot my own horn. And when, 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 when things are, you know, 
hitting the fan colloquially. It's it's a little bit hard to take yourself seriously when you're saying, "Hey, well, look at me, look at me," right? And so if you can do something positive and 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 if you can give in some way, then it's great. And I'm not, of course, I'm not denigrating people who who did it or, or who who for them was a way. It was a way of expressing themselves. But for me, it just didn't. It didn't feel right at the moment, and also I was kind of burnt out. <laughs> There's two, 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 two different, mm, com, uh, you know, conflation of events that was kind of made me lay low for a little bit. You know, rethink some priorities, start learning some new music, and you know, yeah. doing, doing more teaching and, and finding other ways to be productive and to use, you know, this. You know, you can't really call it a profession, this crazy obsession that, that musicians have <laughs> to, do, to do the insane thing they do. So. A crazy obsession that they turn into a profession. Eventually. Yeah, patchwork, right, exactly. It's one little <laughs> one little tile at a time, like a crazy mosaic. And I, I know what you mean about screaming into the void because at the beginning, everything was just like people in their living room with their phone going live on Facebook. Yeah. And um, it's just evolved so much. I just watched, and I, I'm still processing this amazing concert I just watched from um, the Place des Arts, uh, Maison Symphonique in Montreal with the OSM. Hi, Andy. Hi, Brian, if you're listening. <laughs> um, and they played Brahms' first symphony. And we're going to talk about that symphony in a little bit. Don't worry. <laughs> and it just, the tech was so amazing. And... They had their new conductor, and it was so uplifting. But I don't think at the beginning of this pandemic that people were envisioning that we would still be here a year later. So people were like, oh, I'll just do a little living room concert. And now it's like, no, we're back to full-time work, and this is how we're sharing music with people. So it's it's been cool. Um, Speaking of Brahms, one of my favorite composers, not to play. um, (laughs) Yeah, he's not so nice to pianists. No, really, honestly, he's not. Um, I get pretty fed up. Well, there's a reason for it. We can talk about that, but there's definitely a reason for it. It's not (laughs) sadistic. Let me put it that way. It's not sadistic. Who's the most sadistic composer to pianists? I don't know, probably Ligeti. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) Yes, yes, okay, yes. Somewhere in that vein, probably someone like Ligeti. Because yeah. the computational power you need is just, uh, it's, it's beyond physical difficulty. It's, uh, it's this. Yeah, it's right? mental. Yeah, <laughs> you need to be processing way too much information. So you've picked one composer for this recital. Um, first of all, that's pretty gutsy, actually. Um, it's like, this is the whole meal. This is the menu. Although, we'll talk about the sonata in a little bit, because that sonata has many different courses. Mm-hmm five course meal mm-hmm. um you know just six short of chinese new year meal <laughs> <laughs> um so why brahms why did you pick brahms there <clears throat> there's something wonderful about brahms and it, uh it's wonderfully underspoken I, it's sometimes hard to 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 recognize that in his music because it is so full it, it has such vitality it has such uh, you know you, you can list a hundred different adjectives it's so full of stuff but i think the most poignant thing about brahms's music at least for me is that he's able to leave the most poignant things on set it's always <laughs> hanging around there you think about uh 117 118 it's those things those heartbreaking silences Mm-hmm. That, that's what really um it's so evocative and beautiful about Brahms and it's it's very fascinating because Brahms is so uh almost like the other side of the coin for Schumann who when I was younger I loved to play Schumann I still love Schumann Schumann is really absolutely one of my favorite composers it's so uniquely vulnerable and uniquely honest in how he writes the insanity the passion the dejection the depression it's all earnest there is no filter this is a guy with no filter but Which is amazing, the, right? It's amazing, and it burned him out, right? It's just it, it it's very it very obviously took its toll. Mm-hmm. However, on the other side of the coin, Brahms, who was equally as amazing, but in such a different way, right? Studied, uh, academic, or you know, all the stereotypes that people had from during his day would say that he was dry academic. He was a learned composer, a porcupine, but, right? And so difficult to. Uh, music that was difficult, music that was was uh, was really well put together, really thought out. But beyond it, it it, it um 
it's all it's in a weird way the complement to Schumann's incredible earnesty, right? This is Brahms' ambivalence. I do feel sometimes when I'm listening to Brahms, like there is the he does present the emotions that he's feeling, but he doesn't actually a hundred percent let us in. Where when I listen to the Schumann fantasy. I almost feel like I should be not watching this intimate moment between him and Clara. Right, right, right. I feel like I should be turning away, like, this is not my moment, but right. he lets us in. Right, that's why it's it's remarkably vulnerable. And it's it's neither, It's this is not a value judgment, right? It's not that one is better than the other. And it it's just that it's just, it, 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 they're so, in many ways, so similar, but they express it so differently. And again, a lot of this might be because I have this incredibly warm reading of their biographical, you know, their life stories. Mm-hmm. Right? And they're, they're, the two of them are kind of tied together by, by Clara. Yes. It, it's a sad, beautiful story. Uh, you know, there was, um, there, there was a, apparently back in the day a movie about this moment when, when, when Brahms arrives at the doorstep of the Schumann's household. And, uh, you know, Mr. Claude Frank used to tell this story all the time. So, you know, he would tell, he would reenact the scene from the movie and he would <laughs> sit down and, and, and play, I think it was the, 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 the Opus 79 Brahms Rhapsodies. Great pieces. Yeah. And, and so that, that memory, you know, it kind of lingers for me. And so that, it, it all comes together to have this kind of, um, you know, no, 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 no music and no preference for, for whatever music you like can be separated from your past with it. Right. So your experiences yes. and the environments and the things that you've been taught all come together to form your preferences for something. And so for me, that idea that they're, they're kind of they share some kind of a bond and mm-hmm. not, not only their music, but in their lives, it's uh, it's incredibly attractive. And it's, it's something that is, is very heartwarming. You think about uh, the slow movement of the D minor piano concerto, which some say was written as a kind of a portrait of, of grieving Claire after after Robert's death. Things like this. It's really quite heartbreaking. And uh, uh, whether or not this is the, you know, I don't want to encourage students to be reading biographical data into <laughs> from the composer's lives into into how they interpret pieces. Right? Mm-hmm. But, you know. <laughs> but it's possible. It is possible. Right. And it's so interesting you mentioned Claude Franck because um, that was the first ever solo piano recital I went to. Um, this was in my first year of university. Which was only two years ago. <laughs> Kidding. We're all getting old, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, well, time, time marches on. <laughs> um, for those of you that are going to listen to this, Larry is laughing at me right now, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> so the first concert I ever heard of a solo recital was Claude Frank, and he played Opus 111, a few Chopin Nocturnes, and the second half was 960. Mm. And I could not believe my ears. It was the first time I'd heard 960. And I went back to my dorm and I just sat in silence and I phoned my mom the next morning and I said, mom, I need to go back to piano lessons and I need to go back like next week. And she's like, you quit two years ago in high school. You wanted to play sports and go hang out with boys. (laughs) And I was like, I just want to play piano now. I don't need sports. Um, which isn't true. Kids out there, do your activities and do piano. Do both. You need to be healthy. <laughs> do your sports. But 960 and that performance just, it kind of altered my course a little bit. Um, well, he was a special musician. A, yeah. A special person, you know, incredibly warm, warm-hearted. Um, there was, he kind of radiated this love for music. And yeah, it's um, he had a really special place in in the in the in the music community in the Yale community, you know, all all, all over the place. So did you get to play for him? Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. So uh, a few times, and it was just you know he he is incredibly positive, and uh, it's something super up, uplifting about playing for someone who has that kind of presence and that kind of. When, when he sits down and demonstrates, even even towards the end, when his hands would barely barely work, and he was still playing, it was just you know 
beautiful, beautiful poem. Mm -hmm. Real humanity yeah. and honesty in how he plays. So. Yeah, that's what I remember about that recital. I also remember it was snowing really hard in Edmonton, and it was really cold going home. <laughs> but that, sounds, that sounds par for the course, huh? It is par for the course. <laughs> um, so this Sonata of Brahms that you've picked is a little bit unusual. Um, for everybody out there, this is about to get music nerdy, so grab another drink. Um, <laughs> most sonatas have three or four movements, uh, depending on the era. This one has five. That's kind of weird. Can you tell us a bit more about this sonata? Yeah, it's the... So Brahms, uh, you know, in, in many ways, Brahms would kind of follow the outline of Schumann's compositional career too and kind of focusing on genres and in the beginning and similarly like Schumann in the very beginning of his career the first 28 opuses or piano opuses right and he was this is how he made his mark early on is writing piano pieces and Brahms did the same thing and he, he was more diversified he wrote some piano violin music and things like that but the, his, the majority of his output in the very beginning the early opuses in in you know uh are, are piano solo pieces. And this sonata, uh, the Opus 5, is the third of his three sonatas. And it, it's really interesting to think that he only wrote three sonatas. And they're all right, right, right in the beginning of his career. And then he never came back. He let it go. He let it go. And um, it's not surprising. And, uh, and I'll explain why that is. It's uh, uh, as I said, as I'm going to say in the lecture, I'll give a little preview, is that Schumann kind of announced Brahms to the world. And he said that this will be the composer who picks up the mantle of Beethoven. Now, just just think about, right. Think this about guy. That. Think about that for a few minutes. I mean, <laughs> if think about, at 20, this is about, what, 20 years after Beethoven's death. Even in that, period of time he had become a larger than life figure he was already a legend mm -hmm. and he so dominated the discourse of music that um it kind of precipitated the war of the romantics that that would happen between schumann and brahms's conservative side and and the wagner list camp right and but both yeah. sides claiming heir to beethoven's legacy so it's no surprise that um, after, after you really thoroughly dipping his hands into the genre, that that really was Beethoven's bread and butter, right? When you think about Beethoven, it's his sonata forms. I mean, it's the thirty-two of them. Not just the not just the piano sonatas, the cello sonatas, the violin sonatas, the the string quartets. These are all sonata form pieces as well. The symphonies, symphonies, the symphonies, the piano concerti, the other. It just go down the list. He the mastery of sonata form it, it that he achieved it's like no other it's an absolute transcendent mastery of a form and for someone like brahms who was so studied so careful so attentive to craftsmanship he said that inspiration without craftsmanship is a reed shaken in the wind mm. and for him craftsmanship was of the utmost importance and so he had to conquer this kind of the uh, staple form. And sure. I think, I think uh, there was this, this doubt that he had planted in him from the very young age. And if you see the correspondence that he had with Schumann right after Schumann wrote that, that, that kind of headlining article about him, he said, I don't know how I'm going to ever live up to these expectations. In the Neues outskrift for music in that yeah. article. Yeah, right. And he, Brahms re replied privately to, to Schumann immediately after that was published saying, I don't know how I'm going to, do this and so this idea of having to take take this legacy and, and this mantle down from someone as great as beethoven he just it, it, it in many ways it crushed him and so he he really felt that urge and that need to live up to something that in, in many ways was in his head and i think that this is it's so interesting that you know, on a podcast where we're talking about Brahms, Beethoven is already brought up and he's already called the master of this form. And I guess that kind of gives us an idea of what Brahms was living with in his own head. Yeah. And I Schubert mean, too. Schubert lived with this. And he said, right. he said, bury me beside my master. <laughs> right. I, it, it's a figure. There are a few figures in, and, and this is uh, uh, something I've been uh, 
that's been percolating in my mind about a, a course that I want to eventually develop. It's, there, there are a few figures throughout history that that causes kind of crisis in people, right? Uh, yeah. Slightly Hegelian way of looking at music history, but <laughs> yeah, but it, it's there. Another one's Wagner, right? Yes. Wagner, love him, hate him. You, there had to be a response. There was no getting around the gigantic kind of gravity well that was Wagner's influence. And the same thing with Beethoven. Who, who to 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 Wagner, Beethoven was the influence. You see, and there was just this kind of chain reaction of people that mm-hmm. love him, hate him, doesn't matter. You have to reply, and you have to, in your own way, work out the influence that these. That these seminal figures have upon your own craft, you know. Think Debussy and and, and Wagner, kind of exercising the ghost of Bayreuth, as he called. Yes, call it. Right. there is a ghost at Bayreuth. I'm sure there must be many ghosts. Right, right. <laughs> um, so, for people tuning in to the concert on Friday, January 29th at 6 p.m., <laughs> um, what can they listen for in this sonata? Well, as you said, it's five movements, um, which is an odd number of movements and then but when you look really look into it it's actually not the extra movement and and, and this is something remember Brahms was 20 when he wrote this piece 20 mind blown so young. he was 20 so young. but even in in his youth you can see the the well measured out thought that and planning that went into the music mm-hmm. and the, the the extra movement is um in my estimation uh, this is a this is now my my fanciful thinking is in a way his um own response of sorts to the very beginning of the last movement of the ninth symphony in which all of the material from previous movements are drudged up and then cast aside as the ode de joy becomes increasingly clear in the celli and the basses right and th- th- this is something that he kind of does in that intermezzo movement the the ruchblich ruchblich means to to look back to reminisce and this is exactly it he brings back material from previous movements and he ties them together and the materials that dominate the previous movements in large part are references and homages to Beethoven and he ties up this storyline so that the final movement the fifth movement it's uh he's free but alone that's that's right if you watch the lecture you'll actually know what that means so I'll (laughs) leave it there and we will encourage everyone to watch the lecture and recital. And I want to talk about this lecture and recital were filmed in a pretty special place, um, in a very cold but special yeah. Yeah, special it was, setting. It's a difficult working condition. Did your fingers freeze? Yeah, it was very cold. I, I kept on running them under hot water, and that doesn't really help. And I was, you know, in in somewhat uh, formal attire, so I couldn't actually you know do do some exercise to get myself warmed up but no it was um it's a it's a working space so it it has a a bit of that air of authenticity to it so so it was filmed in a workshop in yonkers which is just outside of the bronx right yeah north north okay um and you have recently with some colleagues started a wonderful company called Il Bel Canto Piano. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about Il Bel Canto Piano and what is your vision for that? Sure. Um, this was almost uh, serendipity how this happened was that um, and and it, I have to really thank my my esteemed my esteemed former roommate Wayne Wang for for introducing Tali Mahanara to me and uh, Tali is is my my one of my business partners in this venture and she is a tuner technician and and rebuilder extraordinaire she is incredible um her knowledge of pianos and Steinways and chickerings and all sorts of things related to the keyboard instruments is you know the, the knows no equal really and so I was lucky enough and because my piano at that time which Wayne had been so courteously practicing for years. Wayne, um, are you listening to this? Cause you're in trouble now. <laughs> he, he said he would be later. He's busy right now, apparently. Um, <laughs> but it, 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 the piano needed work. And he suggested that I get in contact with Tali because she had just done such great work for Wayne's friend, Adam, 
And um, so that's how we met. And she she worked on on my this baby over here. This my uh, 1927 Stanway M. Um, phenomenal i mean just just what was done with the instrument and the life and the, the tone that she breathed back into it um it was it was staggering to me that it, this could be done with an instrument and so i got to know her and talk really a lot more about these instruments about what was really the golden age and it's thrown around a lot but there's a truth there's a there's a modicum to truth to this which is that there was a period of time when the craftsmanship and the care and tension that Steinway provided to their pianos was at an all-time high and it was those during these this piano 1927 is right you know towards the tail end of this period and it just incredible instruments that really when they're given the intent of restoration that they deserve are just in superior instruments i mean just some of these instruments i have uh, uh you, you missed uh seeing the the stanway c if, if this was yesterday i would have still been in boston and there's our our <laughs> stanway c from 1894 um just beautiful instruments uh and so i i i became so interested in the craft of it in all of the parts of the piano and how the piano works and what it is that goes into restoration that I wanted to somehow, you know, become a part of it and help them expand their business because their work really deserves a larger audience. They just do amazing things. And so uh, between me and my other business partners currently, we are trying to expand the market for these pianos that we have. And it's a, you know, it's a small operation. We're not a large, it's not a, it's not like a, a factory rebuilding. We don't do thousands <laughs> of pianos at a time, but every, everyone that, 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 that she touches, it's a gem. So we want to uh, share that with people. And inquiries can go through Daisy again. <laughs> yeah. <that's right. laughs> but if you want to, if you want to learn more, uh, it's belcantopiano.com and there's our, our, our video about what we do and, and the work that, that goes up in our workshop in Yonkers. And it's, uh, it's wonderful stuff. So it's Thanks. something that I never, it's something that I never saw coming, but I guess that's a lot of life. Just, you know, things kind of work their way out the way that they work out. <laughs> that's so true. Yeah. And I've, I've seen pictures of the workshop and I've seen, and heard the pianos being played, um, and it's really beautiful, beautiful work. And having visited um, Steinway Factory in New York, actually, I visited that factory with you. I remember that at way too early o'clock in the morning. <laughs> um, and I also have visited the Fazioli Factory in um, Italy. So next time, I look forward to to seeing the space where Il Bel Canto is. It's it's definitely more how shall I say it rustic. Um, <laughs> there's a I have a real love for these kind of spaces where it's very clearly a working space. Mm -hmm. There's nothing manicured about it. It's you know it's rough and tumble, but there's an incredible beauty to it because you know it's a space. There's probably 200, 300 pianos up there in all in, in various stages of of restoration it's just a, a kind of a unique it's a unique unique environment for sure very inspirational for sure sounds really cool uh, a few more questions mm -hmm. now we've talked a little bit about um online concerts and at the beginning of the pandemic people were clicking live on their phones and just playing for people and it was it was it was wild. It was like the freaking wild west out there. Um, but how has your experience been? Like, how have you pivoted to teaching online? Do you have students in different places now? Yeah, teaching online. I, and do you know I I I have had some experience teaching online even before this. So in many ways, it was just a ramping up of some of the work that I've I had already been doing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it is a different experience. You know, you do it a couple times a week, it's okay. And then when it becomes like you have a five hour day of of being on Zoom straight, it's a little bit of a different experience. Um it's it's hard. Um I find I, I've been very impressed with how my students have, have managed it. It's difficult and it's difficult it, as difficult as, as it is for me, it's more difficult for them. So uh, you know, you try to understand, but you also try not to allow things to slip in ways that are unacceptable, right? Uh, but I mean, it's it's difficult, especially for the younger students, the ones who are just beginning. It's a 
it's a tough, tough uh, place to begin their educational process. So. I have a new four-year-old student. She's so cute. And her mom said, um, can we just wash our hands and wear masks? Because we don't think online will work for her. She just turned four. And I said, you're probably right. It probably won't work. So we just have like health guidelines in the studio and it's, yeah. it's impossible. She's only four. It's and very, it's very difficult. Um, it's a real struggle. And that's the, that's the real shame about this whole thing is that, you know, these younger kids that are coming up right now and they're four or five, they're really at the prime of their, you know, absorbing information stage. Their, their minds are, 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 um, pliant. Mm-hmm. Right? And is this the time to be, you know, learning new skills and stuff it's a difficult time for them so i really i really uh, you know empathize so you try, to, you try you try yeah you, and you try to do the best that you can so that's all you can really hope for right and i think that it's been interesting to see how different people are able to make connections like i know that um my piano teacher in oakville hi chris <laughs> and my voice teacher in toronto hi dr bob um they, I've never met them in person, and the bond we've created is incredible. You know, I see these people once a week, and they've improved my singing and my playing, and it's just, it's pretty remarkable. I think people have been so um, versatile, and I think that people with a positive attitude have kind of just forged forward, and the skill set that some of us have now, it's going to be pretty incredible moving forward. Yeah, for sure. There's always a... Uh... Again, I, I, I hate to trade in platitudes, but there, there is a there is a silver lining to all of that, right? That's true. Um, we're going to end our interview with a few desert island questions that we ask oh, a lot of our guests. Oh so let's pretend that you're isolated. <laughs> That's hard to pretend. Yeah. It's a real um, reach, mental gymnastics. It's a real reach to imagine we're all isolated right now. So imagine you're on a desert island that you've been allowed to travel. <laughs> now that is a reach. That's, yeah, it's sounding like paradise right now. <laughs> yes, for sure. You're on a desert island. What are two recordings that you can't live without? I think, yeah, all right. It's a current. Are we talking now? Are we talking in this moment? Or are we talking like historically? <laughs> I'm talking like you're on the Hudson River, you're on a trip, and you've been lost, and now you're on a desert island. <laughs> uh, like today, today you're on this island. Okay, all right. Let's let's go. Let's go. Let's. This is today's answer then. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's go with uh, Carlos Kleiber's Beethoven Five and Seven. Oh, good call. And <laughs> uh, Beatles Abbey Road. Okay, wasn't expecting the non-classical. I'm full of surprises. <laughs> this is true. Um, there will be some great surprises for our concert on the 29th as well. And so another question about the desert island. If you're on a desert island, you only have three cooking supplies with you. What are the three cooking supplies that you have to bring today? So what are you craving for? What do you <laughs> what do you want to cook today? <laughs> See, see, the thing is, I was thinking a lot more practical. First, you need a really sharp knife. Just <laughs> that is such a you answer. You need a really sharp knife because there's nothing worse than a dull knife, even on a <laughs> desert island. Drive, drive me nuts. Really sharp knife, which would also include a whetstone, I guess, right? Yeah. Uh, a, a cast iron skillet, and then okay. some surefire way to start a fire. Everything else, you can just Im- improvise. Okay. Yeah. Those are good supplies. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and the last desert island question, what are two non-classical types of music that you need to survive? Uh, that's, that's, that's really, it's all over, that's all over the place. It's constantly <laughs> shifting, but jazz is for sure one of them. Uh, and the other one is probably going to be some kind of a tie between old school rap and flamenco guitar. It's a weird choice, selection of choices. <laughs> Nothing in common. Old school rap and flamenco guitar. These are so far from each other. It's amazing. Yeah. I, well, you should have heard my playlists I had in college. They were very strange. <laughs> was it from Tupac to Brandenburg concertos by any chance? No, it was more like 
Tupac, Bill Evans, uh, <laughs> Lucia, and then maybe some Beethoven, something like that. That's a strange collection of, of, of music. That that sounds like a, that sounds like a good playlist to have, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not bad, not too bad. I, Muse West should do some hip hop at some point, but yes, yes, that would be great. <laughs> maybe my board of directors are not listening to this right now. <laughs> um, it's been such a delight to speak to my dear friend Larry Wang live from New York. Um, Daisy has probably gone to nap. She's on the piano. Yes. She's on the piano. Okay. Yeah, um, she's regained her spot because in Boston she's not allowed on the piano. So. Okay. Does she play C major yet? No, she knows how to play one note. I, I've gotten her to play one note, but it's <laughs> it's only it's only when she feels like it. That sounds like a cat's life. And there you go. <laughs> she's, she's the boss. She's the boss. Um, we have a few people to thank to close off our podcast. For uh, this wonderful microphone, we would like to thank Tom Lee Music. And I would like to thank my podcast editor, Josh Short, who has been so patient with my questions like, where does the USB plug in? <laughs> okay, maybe not that bad, but along those lines. Um, and I would like to thank Larry for being here today and the concert on Friday, January 29th. Tickets are available on our website. You won't want to miss um, this concert of Brahms with a wonderful lecture before. And it's been great to speak with you. And thanks. And a reminder to everybody to uh, check out our podcast on Spotify and Apple. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Bye.